Hello, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. I'm Andrew Dunkley, your host, and it's so good to have your company once again. And coming up on this episode, it is all questions because it's episode 350, and that's when we dedicate our show to the audience to nail down such questions as uh, those of stellar mass black holes, our place in the universe, and where that place might be in the future because it's moving. Uh, is there a size limit to rocky planets? Uh, we're going to look at expansion limits, expansion effects, asteroids, space-time, and photons. All questions coming from our vast audience of one, two, three, four, nine. <laughs> uh, here on Space Nuts. Hope you can hang around a while. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. Five, four, three, two. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me to discuss all of that and much, much more is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Um, very good to be at large again. Yeah. 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 I haven't caught you yet. I haven't <laughs> caught you yet. Found me. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, we've got a, a smashing program. It's uh, There's so much to talk about today. So I think we'll just hoe straight in and uh, get stuck into it. And our very first question comes from none other than... Hello, Space Nuts. Martin Berman Gorbine here, writer extraordinaire in many genres. And today we're crossing my strengths in science fiction with horror as we ask, how close could a spacecraft with human beings aboard realistically get to a stellar mass black hole before all the people inside are fried and or linguinified, which I think sounds better than spaghettified, don't you? Can't wait to hear the answer. Martin Berman Gorvine in Potomac, Maryland here, over and out. Linguinified. Yeah, yeah we can I like work it. with that. Yeah, yes. we can work with that. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, how close is too close? So I suppose... The answer is it depends. Uh, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, I um, <laughs> um, so somewhere in here we go. This is the uh, the usual um, uh, tribute to one of my books, <laughs> but I can't remember which <laughs> one or which chapter. That's five episodes like, in a row. You know, <laughs> it's all right. I'm not naming any. At least I don't think I'm going to. Um, uh, <laughs> I did write about the event horizon diameter of uh, a stellar mass black hole, um, and I can't remember what it is, uh, but it's it's relatively compact, mm -hmm. um, measured in kilometres, if I remember rightly. But the event horizon is not really uh, what would sort you out in you know in the answer to to Martin's question, uh, because yes, you'd be linguinified, spaghettified. Uh, you probably would even be risotto-fied as well because uh, <laughs> you might end up in bits. Right. Uh, when you got within a much closer distance. Um, so uh, here's, here's a, a, something I'm pulling out of my memory from only about four weeks ago. Uh, there is a, there's a gas cloud which is currently uh, orbiting the or it's, it's not orbiting it's passing by 
the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Now, that's not a stellar mass black hole, which is what Martin's asking about. This is a, yep. a 3.6 million stellar mass black hole. Um, this uh, this gas cloud is passing within a few trillion kilometers, if I remember rightly, of the black hole, and it is being spaghettified. Uh, right. It's been watched, it's been observed to do that uh, over quite a long period. Uh, notwithstanding that, a few more million uh, trillion kilometers, there are stars happily in orbit around the supermassive black hole. So I don't I haven't done the calculation, Martin. Um, it's probably uh, conjecture as to you know what at what level uh, do the tidal forces uh, separating your head and your feet start to become significant enough that they overcome the 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 uh, you know the atomic forces which are holding your atoms Body together, together. Wow. Um, and that's uh, a calculation that I haven't done. <laughs> Uh, but it's it, it, even for a stellar mass black hole, it's probably not very far away. I think the tidal forces that you would experience would would really start to make things uncomfortable. Um, okay. And and which one is the stellar mass black hole again? In terms of the size of black holes, uh, it, it's uh, the mass of one star. <laughs> Stellar mass is one star, right? Okay, yeah. gotcha. Hence the name. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm being glib there, but it, that's right. It's a, a, an object of the order of the mass of one star, which sometimes includes things up to twenty or thirty times the mass of the sun. Yeah, uh, but it's still not a supermassive black hole, and it's not the other thing that we've talked about from time to time: the intermediate mass black holes, uh, things of of order a thousand times the mass of the sun. Uh, which which are quite rare, we believe, and very much unlike the ultra massive black hole that we talked about uh, a few yes. weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. Is yes, ultra bigger than big, bigger than big. Yes, just, just wait for the hypermassive black hole. That's the next one to come. Well, it could happen, couldn't it? Indeed, it could. You just never know. These things, these like we when we started the podcast and and right through several episodes um, or several years of episodes, we we could only confirm there were two. Types. Indeed, yes, small and large. And now we've got yeah, yeah, loads, little, yeah, and, loads and of some, different, and including that um, ultramassive black hole that we talked about. That's sort of pushing the limits uh, of which we thought black holes could exist. We thought they couldn't exist. Uh, be a, can, I can't remember what it was. Was it um, thirty billion or thereabouts? I can't oh, remember yeah, the figure. it was some like astronomical it was, number. It was a huge number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Um, so the answer to Martin's question is, in uh, real terms, you could get reasonably close, but not that close. But not that close. Sorry, Martin, we haven't given you an answer at all, have we? We just yeah. talked but, about it, it. But reasonably close is what? Um, uh, I I think millions you'd be, of kilometers. Yeah, I don't think you'd want to get. You know, if it was at the centre of the solar system, <clears throat> I don't think you'd get, want to get much nearer than Saturn or Neptune. Oh, oh right. sorry, oh, Uranus. So, yeah. Mm. Well, no one wants to get near that. No, indeed. Um, now, okay. So, Martin, that's a very loose answer to your question, but it's a good question because uh, you know one day we might be able to get out there and get close to one of these things, and you then just really, you really need to do your mathematics before you line <laughs> lined yourself up. Bring it home. Came out of your space warp. Oops, I mentioned the name, uh, and <laughs> got too close. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Thanks, Martin. Great to hear from you. Let's uh, go to a text question. This actually came in via email from Andrew. Uh, he says, uh, hi, love the show. I have a science question. Does our sun move its position as the planet's orbit? Uh, if so, by how much? Thanks, Andrew. Hit reply to respond. No, we'll just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great question. Um, and the answer is yes, it does. Uh, and so basically the bottom line here is that the sun, in a sense, is not the center of the solar system. Uh, the point at the center of the solar system is something called the barycenter, uh, which is the sort of, um, it's like the center of gravity of the solar system. So it includes not just the sun, but also the planets, of which really only one counts in this uh, in this um, argument, and that's the planet Jupiter, which is, uh, you know, the most massive of, of the solar system's planets. Um, uh, so, but the barycenter, uh, that's to say this center of gravity does actually move around with respect to the sun, or should I say the sun moves around with respect to the barycenter. Um, and it's that process that actually allows us to detect the planets of other stars, because uh, if you've got a if you've got a, a, a object in deep space, a star, um, you know, 100 light years away, all you can observe is its light and its spectrum. But what you can see is its its velocity changing slightly as the planets pull it, you know, slightly one way or the other. And you can actually dis disentangle how many planets there are around a, a star without being able to see any of them, just by knowing how the star moves with respect to the barycenter. It's that movement yeah. that you can see uh, reflected in the star's velocity. And in fact, we can now detect motions of stars with an accuracy measured believe it or not, in centimetres per second, uh, rather than, well, the work I did, uh, you were doing well if you got down to a kilometre per second accuracy. Uh, but metre per second accuracy has been uh, uh, attainable for a long time, but now people are talking about centimetre per second accuracy in the, the speed of a star that you can detect. I, if I remember rightly, um, the planet Jupiter changes the sun's velocity by around 11 metres per second. Is that so right? To detect, uh, yeah, if to detect a, a Jupiter-sized planet in the same orbit as Jupiter is, uh, but around another star rather than the Sun, uh, you would see motions of that star of eleven meters per second as it moves with respect to the barycenter. Okay. Now, um, Andrew's other part of his question was, uh, how much does it move? How much does the Sun move with respect to the center of gravity of the solar system? And it, it's basically not much, but that barycenter does actually, from time to time, um, it, it is outside the sun rather than being within it. So you're talking about the sun moving by, you know, some fraction of its diameter. And it might be quite a large fraction. Uh, it's not millions of kilometers. It's, uh, well, actually, the sun is 1.4 million kilometers in diameter. So it might be millions of kilometers, but, but um, you know, more likely to be uh, tens or hundreds of thousands. That's uh, which means that the barycenter is, for the most part, inside the sun. But it does occasionally go outside. When you reckon, when you include the effect of all the planets, that includes Saturn as well as one of Jupiter. I suppose the other way to describe the movement would be that um, that wobble we talk about when they're trying to detect um, 
planets around other stars. That uh, that's one of the methods, isn't it? The, yeah, the that's, wobble. Yeah, exactly. What that that wobble is the eleven kilometers per second in the case of Jupiter around the sun. Mm, yeah. the, okay. the Doppler wobble technique, it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, very good. Thanks, Andrew. Um, hope you're doing well. Let's uh, go on to our next question. This comes from Tom in Ireland. He said, hi, my brain hurts. Please help. Um, <laughs> paracetamol or ibuprofen is very good for that, Tom. Uh, 13.8 billion years ago, the universe began and has been expanding ever since. How is it that we can see objects up to 12 billion light years away in one direction and also in the opposite direction? If we are seeing these objects where they were 12 billion years ago, uh, which means they were 24 billion years apart, how could they have originated at the same point 13.8 billion years ago? Please help. Love the show. Tom in Ireland. I think he's getting his light years and his um, universal age years mixed up, possibly. Um, no, it's a, it's a, it is. It's a confusing thing. Mm. Um um, because yeah, and, and your age years is a good point because we talk in terms of look back times. That's the yeah. the the kind of usual phrase, and so uh, it's misleading to say a galaxy is twelve billion light years away, um, unless you qualify it by adding in the co in the co moving coordinate system, <laughs> and not many people do. <laughs> I know I don't. No, there you go. Um, so. The the bottom later it's better to talk in terms of look back times, uh, because that's the sort of fundamental thing. When you see an object um, in very the very distant universe, uh, it's you're seeing it as it was maybe when the universe was one point eight billion years old. If it's if it's got a twelve billion year look back time, but its actual distance is much more than twelve billion light years because. Uh, the universe has expanded by a huge amount since the light left that object. So um, the 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 what you might call, in fact, it's got a name. It's called the proper distance. Uh, would be uh, something like thirty, uh, maybe thirty-five billion light years away, because of the expansion of the universe. But that's something that you can't actually measure in any way. Uh, uh, that distance, because all we see is the light that's re reached us after its 12 billion year journey. And so it's more accurate to talk about look back time of, of 4 billion years than to say a distance of uh, a look back time of 12 billion years rather than a distance of 12 billion light years, unless you say it's a co-moving distance, which is the, the distance uh, which doesn't account for the expansion of the universe. Good grief. Uh, it, it kind of equates to the uh, question we often get about um, where is the centre of the universe yeah, and right. where we are, where are we in it? Well, we are in it, That's technically right. speaking. Yeah. So, um, sorry, and Tom, I didn't really answer probably the, or address your question about uh, things being separated by 28, uh, sorry, 24 billion, 24 billion. light years. Mm. Uh, and that's, all that is saying, yes, we see things receding from us in different directions and the Hubble law seems to work everywhere whatever direction you're looking and the Hubble law is the one that relates it's this velocity uh, the velocity away from us of an object to its distance it's how we know that redshift equals distance in in um, you know standard cosmological model of the universe so um, uh, what the, what that is telling you is that 
uh, the universe, first of all, is extremely big. Um, and we think that when it kicked off uh, within the first gazillionth of a second, uh, in fact, about 10 to the minus 33 of a second, if I remember the number rightly, it expanded very violently in this period we call the age of inflation, uh, which only lasted a few quintillions of a second, uh, but blew up the universe from the size of a pea to the size of a galaxy. Uh, and it, and then the expansion sort of settled down. But that's how we think. Um, that's why we think the universe looks the same in all directions, even though it's very, very large and the distances separating objects is very uh, very extreme. We think at one time everything was very close together and then it wasn't. Uh, and uh, that's why we see what we see today. Mm, okay. Tom's headache is throbbing now. Yes, probably, yeah. I, I go for aspirins, actually. Uh, you know. You do? Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just situation. go around um, trying to find uh, uh, willow trees and lick the bark. Okay. All right. Mm. That's, I, wondered, that's I wondered what you were doing. That, that's, <laughs> that's a natural painkiller. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's how aspirin was invented, wasn't there it? There you go. Mm, not sure. Go. Something like that. We, yeah, willow is a natural has a natural pain killing property in it. It does. Uh, thank you, Tom. Great to hear from you. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, to a regular contributor to our question and answer session, and it's uh, Duncan from Weymouth, I think. I'm pretty sure he'll tell me that's where he's from. Hello, it's Duncan here from Weymouth in the UK. Another quick question. Um, I know that Andrew likes hypothetical ones, so here's one that's been bugging me for a while. If you could get a huge mass of rock together, say, I don't know, a hundred times Jupiter's mass of solid rock in one place and put it in, I don't know, orbit around a star, would it form a really massive rocky planet? Or is there an upper limit as to how big or how massive a rocky planet can be? Just interested to know, and if it couldn't form a massive, massive rocky planet, what would actually happen to that rock to prevent it becoming a rocky planet? Would it somehow not be able to be bound together, or would it melt or boil and form a gas, or, or what would prevent that? Okay, keep up the good work, and thanks for your efforts. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Duncan. Um, I reckon it would become a Kuiper belt or an asteroid belt or something like that if it couldn't form a planet. would have to sort of break up like that. But uh, how big's the limit, I suppose? That's the, that's yes, the question. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think the limit is um, imposed is, is imposed not by the physics of, of how big something can be, it's more about how things evolve when planetary systems are formed. So we think that uh, rocky planets do evolve by the, the sort of silica material in the original dust and gas cloud that formed the solar system. We think that stuff all stuck together, uh, became solidified, turned into rock. Um, 
these bits of rock bashed into one another, some stuck together, some didn't. But in the end, you, you got planets building into, uh, so uh, rocks building into planetesimals and then to protoplanets and eventually to planets. Uh, but this is all taking place within an environment that is very, very gassy. And oh. um, if you form rocky cores um, that start getting very big, you will also amass gas. You won't just um, you don't won't just accrete rock. You'll accrete gas as well, uh, and that's why we think the gas giants are gas giants because they grew big enough that they not only uh, collected more bits of rock, they actually collected very significant envelopes of gas around them, and it, it sort of helped as well by the um, what we call the, the frost line or the ice line. Uh, in the solar system, uh, that region which is between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, where where ice actually forms because the temperature is low enough, yeah. Uh, and so the the you know the limits are more about the way you form planets rather than what could exist. Um, whether a hundred Jupiter mass, I mean a hundred Jupiter mass solid. A hundred Jupiter mass object is is actually a star, um, yeah. because I think the uh, the mass limits for brown dwarfs is is it thirteen Jupiter masses up to about eighty I think, yeah. uh, in something in that range will produce deuteri deuterium burning and become what's called a, a brown dwarf star. But if you get above that, then you've got a, a dwarf star. Um, so. But that's assuming it's made of gas. Um, I, I, I think that the physics present, prevents you from forming a rocky planet with anything like that kind of mass because it would accrete gas uh, rather than uh, accrete just more rock. Okay. Yeah. That's the uh, uh, best we I are, can do, Duncan. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good, though. Um, I think we are discovering rocky planets that are much, much bigger than Earth. Yeah, they're, uh, they're sort of up to um, Neptune mass. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, and they're called super Earths. Um, yeah. So, so that, yes. So, what that's saying is that we we perhaps haven't achieved that limit within the solar system. Yeah. Well, uh, in in the scheme of things, our rocky little world is actually one of the smaller ones, isn't it? In real terms. Yeah. Although it's hard to, you know, the bottom line is that we're not really yet uh, able to detect all the smaller planets that are around stars because it's harder to detect them. You can do, yeah. uh, and there are programs that let you do that. Uh, gravitational lensing's one. Transit method lets you do it as well. Uh, but the, and, and perhaps, you know, Ke the, the Kepler and TESS spacecraft have both contributed many uh, objects uh, which are small compared with, you know, what we used to be finding, which were always the, the Jupiter mass things and bigger. So we are finding mm. rocky planets, but there's still, I think, gaps in our knowledge because we haven't got the technology yet to to to, to find the smallest ones. Ah, so when we get that perfected, we might find a whole bunch yeah, of Earth-sized rocky planets and things that are smaller than Earth as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Thanks, Duncan. Always good to hear from you. Uh, Jim is next. He's from um, something I can't pronounce. Uh, New Orleans. Yeah, New Orleans. It's Jim. Uh, dear Professor Watson and Mr. Dunkley, I've been travelling by car uh, a lot in the past year and was able to catch up on all your podcasts thus far. Blimey. 
Uh, I truly enjoy the show and look forward to the next episode. Uh, On to my question. Because the bodies in the universe are accelerating at an ever-increasing rate, eventually there will come a time when space-time will become impracticable or space travel will become impracticable, if not impossible. What I mean is that eventually, as a result of increasing acceleration, the velocity at which galaxies and their component parts move through the universe will attain a substantial percentage of the speed of light. If we cannot build spacecraft that attain speeds greater than that substantial percentage of the speed of light, then it seems that when a spaceship leaves the Earth's gravity well, the Earth will become unreachable by the spaceship because the spaceship cannot catch up. Uh, can this be right? There must be something that I'm missing. Thanks for your thoughts. <laughs> Have a great day, Jim. Uh, yeah, that's I, I can see where he's coming from. Uh, it is a quandary. Um, and, and yes, we have talked about the fact that as things expand, we're eventually just going to be totally isolated in the universe and we won't be able to see anything else, uh, which is due to happen in a couple of days. But um, what... Uh, yeah, Put it in what, your diary. What, yeah, in, <laughs> indeed. So what's the what's the uh, answer to Jim's quandary? Well, I think Jim's on the, on the money, actually. Um, oh. Because, uh, yes, uh, if we look into the distant future when the expansion... Uh, is has accelerated so that you know you're talking about a, a hugely greater expansion of space time than we have at the moment. Um, things will disappear beyond, beyond the horizon because the light that's leaving them now will never catch up with the expansion of the universe, so we won't yeah. see them. And that's the point that you were just making, Andrew, that we will have a very lonely existence um, when you look a few trillion years perhaps down the track. Um, because the, 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 there won't be anything uh, other than the local group of galaxies visible. Maybe the local group will disappear as well. Uh. Um, and, and I suppose uh, what what Jim's um, question about the spacecraft really means is that uh, if the spacecraft could get far enough from the Earth so that it was being carried away from the Earth due to the expansion of the universe by uh, at a velocity higher than the velocity the spaceship could achieve, then yes, you're right. You wouldn't be able to get back. You'd never yeah. you'd never make it back. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's an interesting conjecture and a universe very different from the one we live in today, thankfully. Yeah, it's, a, it's a horrifying thought though, isn't it? Let's go visit that rock. Oops. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's gone. <laughs> yeah, and we can't get back. Not good. Uh, thank you, Jim. Uh, on a similar um, kind of playing field, uh, Paul in Melbourne says, there has been talk recently about the energy that causes the universe to expand coming from black holes. Mm. If this is so, then wouldn't we see the space-time around or near a black hole expanding at a faster rate than that further away from black holes, for example, between galaxies, or that in the spaces between the filaments of the cosmic web? Wouldn't the filaments of the cosmic web be expanding faster? And there's Fred's answer. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm just trying to remember what the mechanism was that linked, and I can't quite get my head to it, uh, that linked uh, black holes with the dark energy, uh, which is what, uh, you know, what um, uh, it, the, is the thing that we think drives the expansion of the universe. Uh, dark energy seems to be very much a property of space itself, a uniform 
property that that's the same wherever you look. So uh, Paul's question is is an interesting one. Um, so and, and I can't remember the exact link between the mechanisms within black holes uh, and the dark energy because uh, yes, you know it's an intuitive thought if. If dark energy is coming from black holes, then the region around black holes should be expanding more than the region elsewhere. But we already observe the fact that that doesn't happen. Uh, we do see uh, space-time distorted around black holes, but that's due to their gravitational attraction. That's the standard uh, general relativity uh, distortion of space-time that we see, you know, whenever we find gravitational lenses, for example. Yeah. Um, so, and, and the th as I said, the point about dark energy is it's the same. it is a phenomenon that is a property of space. I would have to, um, I'd have to look back at what I was reading up on the, the mechanism that feeds the energy of black holes into uh, the space around them to be able to give an answer to Paul's question. So I'm a bit embarrassed that I can't do that. I mean, it was about, well, it must have been at least two months ago when we talked about this. Yeah, I guess so. It's I do remember story, the though. conversation, but yeah. I just, yeah, I just can't yeah. recall. It, the, it um... is, it, it is um, that paper I don't think has been refuted, the one that suggests that maybe black holes could provide the origin of dark energy. Yeah. Uh, and I wish I could, uh, there, there is a, there's a, there's a point about it, which I'm just not, not able to recover at the moment from the memory banks. Yeah, um, I could have a quick look and see if I can find the article, but uh, yeah. gosh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's yeah, there's there's plenty of articles about it. So which one do you pick? But um, yeah, it, it certainly got a lot of interest at the time. It and did, and that, we, that will continue. Um, you know, so and we talk we're talking mid February when that first came okay. out. So it's, yeah, right. so you know, it's That's fair right. enough that, that at our age we've forgotten. <laughs> at least we remember the article was there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, indeed. So, Paul, um, I might try and look at that again, and we might get back to you if uh, if we don't forget this entire <laughs> conversation. I'll put an asterisk next to his yeah, yep. question. Follow up. All right. Thank you, Paul. Uh, thanks for sending in the question. Uh, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Okay, uh, Fred, uh, a few more questions before we wrap it up. And this one comes from Western Australia, our good friend Rusty, actually, to be more specific, Rusty's wife. Hello, Space Nuts. It's Rusty in Donnybrook. My lovely wife, Ollie, came up with a question about asteroids. And she's seen a few movies with asteroid fields in them and wonders if they're realistic, how close do they get, and how often do they collide? And uh, I think, I'm sure she'd love your answer. Cheers. Thanks, Rusty. Uh, yeah, asteroids, not an uncommon um, topic of questions either, um, mainly the ones that are going to hit us or near near hit us. Uh, but a yeah, different uh, spin on it, so to speak. Mm. And a good one too. Uh, great question because we, you know, when you look at depictions of the solar system, the main asteroid belt, which sits between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, is always portrayed as being full of asteroids. Yeah. Uh, asteroids everywhere, in every direction. Uh, whereas um, the bottom line here is, uh, you know, don't 
Douglas Adams' famous quotation, space is big. You won't believe how big it is. Anyway, it's big. <laughs> um, what was it? You might think it's a long way you down the street. You might think it's to... a long way down the street to the chemist. <laughs> chemist, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, there is a lot of space between them. Uh, so uh, as witnessed by the fact that, um, I can't remember how many it is. It must be this five six, seven, about eight or nine spacecraft have gone through the asteroid belt, uh, including Galileo, Cassini, two Voyagers, two, two Pioneers, New Horizons. Uh, they've all gone through the asteroid belt um, oh. and, of course, been completely unscathed. Um, on, having said that, uh, the second part of, uh, of Rusty's wife's question, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name, uh, but... Um, the second part is, do they collide? And the answer is yes, from time to time they do, uh, which we see usually as a plume of material coming from an asteroid that's being accidentally observed, usually because it's part of the field of view of something else. So some nondescript asteroid will suddenly start looking like a comet. It will get a tail of material, a bit like uh, Dimorphos did after it was clouted by um, yeah. the DART spacecraft. Uh, so you get this uh, usually reasonably straight-lying cloud of material, uh, which is interpreted as having been a collision uh, between two asteroids. Yeah. Uh, we think we've even observed one in the planetary system of another star. Uh, the star is Fumalo. It's a bright star in our southern skies. And um, over a number of years, that's been observed to have an object going around it. We covered this, I think, a year or so ago, Andrew, uh, which was thought to be a planet uh, that gradually got fainter and eventually disappeared. That's uh, right. And the thinking is that what we actually were looking at was the debris cloud from two large asteroids that had collided, that had oh. collided because that thing's vanished altogether now as the, as the debris cloud disperses. So they do, they do collide. Um, uh, Relatively rarely, because the space between them is so is so big. Yeah, I mean, going back a few billion years, it was probably a lot more collisions. Uh, There's a lot more stuff out there to hit each exactly. other in closer yeah. proximity. In fact, that we give that period a name. It's called the late heavy bombardment, about That's three right. three point eight billion years ago, when the place yeah. was full of debris charging around and bashing into other things, including Earth. <laughs> yeah, including yeah. Earth. Uh, That's right, indeed. Well, uh, Thanks, Rusty and Spouse. Uh, let's go, uh, let's go on to uh, our next question from Rennie. Hi, this is Remy from West Hills, California, with another question. I'm trying to understand what space-time is made of and why it bends when it interacts with matter. I envision space-time as an invisible energy force pushing against an object of matter, which is another form of energy, where the two find a balance, which is gravity. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and the answer to your question is it's made up of space and time. Yeah, that's the trouble. Nobody really knows what space-time is. <laughs> no. um, um, but I can qualify that a little bit further because... Whatever it is, yeah, we, we you know we glibly talk about the fabric of space-time bending mm. uh, under the action of mass. Rene's quite right; it's really hard to get your head around that because uh, back in the eighteen eighties, we 
got rid of the idea that there was an ether, something that actually permeated space and allowed um, light to, to pass through, a medium that would transmit light. Uh, that got thrown out, and the consequence of that was actually the special theory of relativity, which says that um, you know you're, you're, the speed of light is the same everywhere because the experiments, the Michelson-Morley experiment, as it was called, uh, to, to measure the ether relied on the fact that you should see the speed of light changing depending on what direction you're moving through the ether. Uh, and we're not moving through the ether, so the speed of light doesn't change. And that then brings up special theory of relativity. So we, we really don't know what it is. But um, the I think uh, you, you have to look at the big picture here because the big picture says, well, there are two sort of uh, pivotal theories on which we base our uh, our view of reality. Uh, general relativity, which works incredibly well for things on a large scale, and quantum mechanics, which works incredibly well for things on a small scale. But the two are incompatible. They don't sort of sit together. Yeah. Uh, and that sparked... Back in Einstein's day, actually, uh, the quest for a theory of quantum gravity that would allow us to unite these two theories, which we're still looking for. But one of the themes uh, that I think uh, is addressed by quantum gravitists, if I can put them that way, uh, people, theoretical physicists who work on this, one of the, th the themes is that we're missing something. Yeah. And what we're missing is a more fundamental theory of space and time that under, underpins what we see as space and time. In other words, there might be something else that uh, from which space and time emerge, and hence space-time. Um, many quantum theorists in the last 20 years have proposed that. And that, the, most of the theories, I mean, string theory is one of those. It's that sort of idea that there's something there uh, that that underpins what we observe in relativity and in quantum mechanics and a kind of deeper version of reality, which yeah. may include additional dimensions. Um, there is some recent work that's being done on this, which we might talk about in coming weeks, Andrew, uh, that once again highlights that there might be this hidden reality beneath space and time, um, which... How do we probe it? That's the problem. And the suggestions that are being put forward for how we might deal with that in a real situation, how we might actually try and peer underneath uh, the the gossamer veil. Well, no, it's not a gossamer veil. It's an opaque curtain of relativity uh, and on the other side, quantum mechanics. Also known as the banking industry. Oh, the mm. banking industry has got that as well, a different reality. <laughs> uh, in fact, yes, I think there are many places in the world where you can point to different realities <laughs> yeah indeed thank you Rennie and hope that helped somewhat now um, adequately now uh, finally we'll go to David who is from Huntsville Alabama uh, first of all I'm a huge fan of the show and appreciate what you guys do to put uh, new wrinkles in my brain I look forward to each Thursday for my space nuts fix my question is if a photon, a photon does not experience time after it's been emitted and the universe is expanding greater than the speed of light, assuming the photon has an unimpeded line straight towards the edge of the universe, is the photon essentially trapped in time at that point? Thanks. Keep up the great work. 
kind of relates to a question we had earlier. It does, yeah. Um, and it presupposes the universe has an edge, which sure. um, we, we, we don't think it has. We don't know what it's got, but we don't think it has an edge. It's got a banking industry surrounding <laughs> it, isn't it? A, a pink yeah. veil. Um, so, if but if the photon, you, you know, to the photon, it's always traveling through the universe at the speed of light. Now, the fact that um, it's the source of the photon and its destination are separating, are being separated by the expansion of the universe at greater than the speed of light. Um, doesn't matter to the photon it just keeps on going yeah. uh, the fact that its target is is moving away from it faster than it's ever going to get there is not a concern to the photon it will still not experience the passage of time which is a, exactly what david said that's uh, what we think is the case um, and, and we'll just keep going uh forever um i suppose in a sense it's the scenario that he he mentioned that um, it will just keep on passing through space uh, ad infinitum because its destination is not is is always going to be further away yeah. uh, that it will reach until the big rip until the big rip yeah that's right an escape yeah maybe well if there's a big rip there'll be um, tidal forces beyond imagination that would probably disturb everything as it yes that's right I think apart. the big rip is. It's got consequences that we can't really envisage at the moment, but it's no. definitely not nice. And it reminds me of that famous song, I'm a photon and I'm okay. I glow all day and I glow all night and I glow all day. <laughs> Stealing from Monty Python. Monty Python, yeah. Mm. Yeah, not quite, but it's uh, close. Uh, it nearly works as well as the original Lumberjack song. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yes. The Thank you, David. It's so great to hear from you. And thanks to everyone who's sending questions. Uh, it's nice to fill an episode with audience questions. And uh, we got a whole fresh batch like one minute before we started. So that was that was good. And that's why some, some of them sort of caught us out of left field. Because yeah, we, afraid it did, yeah. we did what we usually do and went in totally unprepared. <laughs> Sometimes works. Um, so uh, if you do have a question for us, of course, send it to us because... That's what it's all about. We love to interact with you and we love to hear your voices. So where you can record uh, through our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Click on the AMA link and you can record a question there or send us a text question or you can just hit the tab on the right-hand side of the home page, uh, send us your voice message. And as long as you've got a, a smart device or a computer or something dumber than that that's got a microphone, you can send us a question, but we are taking text and audio questions all the time. The more, the merrier. And uh, yes, don't forget the hypotheticals. I love those hypotheticals. Uh, Fred, we're wrapping it up for yet another. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a milestone. It is episode, a milestone. Actually, isn't it? 350. I mean, we kind of let that slip through the keeper. Did. I can't believe it. 350. Yeah. 350. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. It seems like only. Six months ago, we did episode, uh, probably a year ago, we did episode 300. Gosh, that's that would be right, wouldn't it? Yes, that would be right. It'd have to be near a year. It would, yes. Oh. There's a calculation there. Uh, <laughs> I'm not uh, the, the, the words, we should get a life, really come to mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe we should. Thank well, you, Fred, as always. Good, good to talk, Andrew. Take care. All right, we'll catch you soon. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts and back at um, Space Nuts HQ. We say thanks to Hugh for reasons we cannot 
comprehend. But anyway, thank you anyway. Uh, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for joining us uh, each and every week and for this latest episode. We'll catch you on the very next one on Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.